I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You, yes you, listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, we this it feels like lucky today. This is a little bit clickbaity because this is one people will dive on, isn't it? I think it is. It's one of those classic history topics that just keeps coming up. Um, so so here we go. We, we're we're back onto it, and it's kind of in our wheelhouse uh, a little bit. Um, we're into it is because you of- guide this, don't you? I have once. Yeah, or twice. I mean, you guide this. Yeah, it feels a little bit like, I don't know, going back in time, because for a lot of London tour guides, this is kind of how we kind of get into things, really. We get into the swing of things. It's the East End. It's 1888. And we're, I don't know, we're, we're back in the world of misty London and, and top hats, uh, almost, because we're, we're drifting into the world of Jack the Ripper. All right. So uh, with us, we have uh, Christine Ward-Ages, who's a researcher and retired public servant, and Jonathan Hainsworth. Uh, who's a history teacher uh, and author as well. And they've, they've worked on this uh, piece, Jack the Ripper, or the escape uh, of Jack the Ripper, um, which, well, sound, it does sound like a classic kind of title uh, within the genre. Uh, how are you, the two of you? Very well, thank you. And thanks for having us on. Thank uh, you. This is brilliant, Lockie, because I, I have to ask you guys, how do you touch this with a barge pole? Because everyone is obsessed with figuring out who it is, aren't they? Yes. Can I just explain how I got into it? Yeah, no please do, because Lockie and I, like, we go around, we state the facts, we give the list of the suspects when we do the tours, and then we back the hell away. <laughs> I'm a high school history teacher, and uh, a number of years ago, um, I was just looking for something a bit different to introduce a British history of the 19th century, looking at uh, imperialism and socialism and all those sort of isms. And I thought I might just for a couple of lessons do true crime. Uh, as you say, Jack the Ripper is very infamous and it would give us a, an entree into the terrible conditions in London's East End that had forced uh, women to become sex workers because there was no welfare support system. So I thought I'd start with that. And what happened was in introducing the students to a few sources, uh, a female student named Bianca put her hand up and she said there's a discrepancy 
in one of these sources. And I, I to be honest, I was a bit annoyed because I just wanted to go smoothly and keep going. And, and she said, how do you explain that? And I said, I, I'm not sure. I don't know the topic well enough to, so I'll go away and try and figure it out. Because obviously, for a 16-year-old student to have seen this discrepancy, obviously adults over the decades must have noticed this discrepancy and they'll have figured it out. Or Anyway, I looked at all the books. No one had ever noticed it before. And that was a surprise to me. And that's what got me in to um, trying to figure out what was going on with the original sources compared to what the books were written about. What she had noticed was that a police chief had written about the top suspect, Montague Druitt, that he was said to be a doctor. And because he was a young lawyer, it's always discredited that police chief as someone who doesn't know who he's talking about. Hence the need for finding other suspects. But what Bianca said was, yeah, but said to be a doctor, that's, that's provisional. That's contingent, isn't it? I went, well, I, I suppose. And she said, yeah, so said to be a doctor. So might be a doctor. And I went, well, yes, might be a doctor. And she said, so might not be a doctor. And he isn't a doctor. Mm. Uh, and that was the whole thing rolling on from there, trying to research it and figure out. And it took me a few years to to look at sources and compare them with what had been written and, and sort of work it out. I had to machete my way through a whole lot of things that I think and we think are wrong in the interpretation of the material. And that's when my students said, well, what you should do, because you kind of figured it out or you've pr provided a persuasive argument, you should write a book, Mr. Hainsworth. You should write a book. And I thought, it's that's just a good like idea. that. <laughs> And, and I, well, that's right. And I thought, well, that's a good idea, but I have a better idea, which is don't write a book. Just always talk about writing a book. So that became my party piece. I'm going to write a book on Jack the Ripper. But when Christine and I got together, she had noticed me doing this several times. And she said, you're not really going to write that book, are you? And I went, well, no, but I'm talking about writing. And uh, she said, Look, I love I know. it. She just basically said, you are a fraud. Yes, bluff call. Baloney, baloney. <laughs> so, so she said, look, I know it's hard because you work full time and I work full. But look, if we do it together, that was the first book, uh, I'll help you. And that's how it came about. And then she found a lot more material after the first book, which we argue proves conclusively that our interpretation is almost certainly correct. And that's the latest book that's come out that we're talking about today. That's brilliant. Do we not have all this Lockie with Crippen not being a doctor as well? It just seems to have been a thing. If you were a white male of a certain class with a certain amount of money and you just shoved that title in front of your name, no one called you on it. Well, he wasn't educated, wasn't he? He did, he did education. Like in, in my neck of the woods, actually, he was a blackie um, tutor or teacher uh, for a time. And I, I just wonder if... Someone... And a yeah. full-time barrister, a very successful barrister. And he was also a successful, very successful cricketer. yes. So, yeah, he played at Blackheath, that, um, where the, yeah. the cricket club is, is is the same as the old rugby club ground as well, Rectory Field. So, yeah, we've yeah. played on the same turf before. But... Jack the cricketer. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lockie, take us away. I know, like, Lockie's going to have questions. So, yes. 
<laughs> well, I, I, okay, I think we need to just set the context for the uninitiated. Not that I think there are that many uninitiated people, kind of, especially in, around, around us. Um, but let's just talk about the context of the Jack the Ripper story a little bit um, and, and actually kind of centre it back on where we are with the debate now a little bit, because you don't really see books with this kind of title being published more there seems to be a more kind of lean towards the victims and their lives and societal stuff and and you know many would say rightly so um of course but if we, if we could do a kind of five minutes on the kind of jack the ripper basics who the victims were and who else has been uh, accused of that do you reckon you can you can do that yes um in in 1888 there were a series of murders uh, seven in 1888, might have been eight in 1888, of women who were driven into becoming sex workers because there was no other way they could live or sustain themselves. And so the first two, who Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, who are killed uh, a few weeks apart from each other, they're almost certainly killed by gangs of young roughs who uh, robbed them and then killed them. Uh, Martha Tabram may have been killed by drunken soldiers, but they were heavily mutilated. And what we see in the press of that time is that until those two horrific murders, the attitude of the press, which reflected the establishment, was, well, they're nymphomaniacs, you know. Typical Victorians, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's blame the victim. They're fallen women. They're they're immoral, and this is what happens to them. But once those two murders happen, there begins to be this turnaround where the press are saying, "This is horrible. What has happened to these defenceless women?" And you know what? Their lives were already destroyed by being in the East End and being in poverty. And then you get the murder of Polly Nichols. Um, at the end of August, and she is horribly mutilated post-mortem. The best argument is that the murderer strangled her quickly, lowered her body, and then began these terrible mutilations with a knife. And at that moment, the press explode in, well, hang on, here's another woman who's really been uh, neglected. This This is a victim of social neglect. And maybe the first two murders were actually by a maniac. So now suddenly the first murder, probably by the person who'll be called Jack the Ripper, becomes the third murder. So you now have a reign of terror in London as women are being dispatched who are sex workers in the East End. Actually, in a sense, that the fear is not well-founded because he doesn't seem to be attempting to murder women or, 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 or women who are sex workers and therefore easy access in the street anywhere else in London. In fact, what is also noticed is that all the victims in 1888, after Polly Nichols, and in one night he manages to, to kill two women in one, and, and it was just a sense of siege in London. Two police forces, the Met and the city police were involved trying to catch him that night. But what, what they noticed was He was killing women, not just in Whitechapel, but in a tiny area of Whitechapel, a square mile that social reformers called the evil quarter mile, the worst slum of the worst slum. And the famous writer George Bernard Shaw wrote this letter to the newspaper 
in which he said, now he's being tasteless and he's being satirical, but he's saying us social reformers who've been doing marches and writing pamphlets and making speeches, we've got nowhere. And then this single maniac, by dispatching some of these women so horribly, has converted the proprietary owning class, the property owning class, into some sort of form of primitive communism. Because now suddenly you've got people in parliament going, it's terrible about the murders. But you know what else is terrible? East End poverty that we're not doing anything about. We need to move on sanitation. We need to move on congestion. We need to move on. So Shaw was saying, well, this, this maniac's doing a better job than us. Now, he meant that satirically, because what he couldn't know was that the murderer was in fact not some sort of maniac who perhaps should have been committed to an asylum. He was in fact a, a, a member of the upper bourgeoisie. He was a member of the upper uh, classes, upper middle class to be specific. And we think that since he didn't, as you said, he lived in Blackheath. He didn't have to go anywhere near the East End, but he chose that because he's actually a terrorist. Um, he's, in, he's informed by left-wing ideas of the time, socialism, anarchism, there were various um, Irish nationalist groups who were trying to blow up Scotland Yard, blow up Parliament. So terrorism is very much a, a way of life and death in London at that time. So that was one of the things that was noticed in 1888. And so he kills um, a woman called Mary Jane Kelly. And that's the only one that's done in a room, her little hovel room. And she is torn to pieces. Uh, even the public knows that, even though not allowed to know the the details of what was done post-mortem. But this, again, is a terribly shocking murder. But it's also critical, the timing of the murder. He did it on Lord Mayor's Day. So that Lord Mayor's Day, where the city pretends that for one day we'll feed the poor, is spoiled, deliberately spoiled, deliberately sabotaged, because here is a young woman of the people who has been torn to pieces. Now, the murders actually go on until 1891 with reduced frequency. So it isn't really an autumn of terror, as it's called. It's really a protracted affair that goes over a couple of years. And then they just seem to stop the murders. 300 men were arrested and questioned. No one was ever charged. And then what we found in our research is that from 1891 onwards, a very famous writer of the day, as famous as Charles Dickens had once been, though not as good a writer, called George Sims. His column is read every Sunday um, uh, called Mustard and Crest. And what he starts writing, and everyone knows he has insider police contacts, is, well, you know what? Jack the Ripper, hmm. Which was, the name, by the way, didn't come from the murder. It came from a hoax letter by two journalists. Um, he said, Jack the Ripper, you know, he might be dead. Uh, he was probably young. He was probably from the middle classes. He was probably a semi-professional figure, handsome and well-spoken. And he's probably taken his own life in a state of uh, mental agony. Now, this wasn't noticed initially. It would take until the end of the decade, 10 years after the five murders that are attributed to one maniac, the other murders are, are, are copycats after 1888. It would take 10 years and then a semi-official solution was provided to the public. 
by a man called Major Arthur Griffiths, who was the chief warden of prisons and a crime writer. And his huge book, Mysteries of Police and Crime, came out and everybody zeroed in on his introduction in which he revealed a bombshell. And that was, well, you know how we thought the police had no good suspects? Actually, they had three. And the top one was a doctor, a middle-aged doctor who drowned himself in the Thames. And he would have been arrested and probably charged if he hadn't killed himself. And everyone's like, who's that? Who's this doctor? We, we've never heard of this figure before. And then George Sims comes in and saying, yeah, 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 it was the doctor. He was a recluse, very rich, middle-aged uh, from a very prominent London family. He actually hadn't been a doctor for several years because he'd been in asylums. He should never have been let out. And his friends, his friends, that's right, we'll call them friends. They're, they're trying to find him after that last murder. But his body then bobbed up in the Thames and the police with their dragnet were just a little too late. So to Edwardians into the 1900s, Jack the Ripper wasn't a mystery. They all knew who it was. They didn't know his name. That wouldn't be uh, respectful of someone who, who, who was outside due process. But apart from that, they knew who it was. The, it was Jack the Gentleman. And this was very important, this, this leaking by this police chief to his writer friends, because what he was doing was saying, Jack the Ripper is not Jewish or an immigrant or someone poor or a convenient outsider. Jack the Ripper was one of us, not one of them, like it or lump it. He was a gentleman above suspicion, and he had some sort of mental illness, and eventually he took his own life as, a, as the police were closing on him. So that was important because a lot of people didn't like that solution, but, oh, well, it's sort of like Jekyll and Hyde. When the First World War came and went, that's when a lot of these people are deceased who know the truth, and when new researchers in the 1920s attempted to, well, let's find this drowned doctor. I mean, how hard can it be? He must be registered as a doctor who took his own life in the Thames. So they looked everywhere in various records. No such person existed. And therefore, a mistake was made in the 20s into the 1930s, which was, you know what? That whole story is bunkum. It's just made up as police propaganda to say, well, we didn't completely screw up the case. And by the time you get to the 1940s and 1950s, it's all forgotten about him being a suicide. And the image of Jack has become solidified in popular culture. As you said, a man with a top hat, a man with a cloak, a man with a medical bag. Actually, that part is a, is, is proper, is a lie by the, by the people who know the truth to avoid admitting it's actually a young barrister, which would have destroyed a very prominent uh, 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 Dorset-based family. And so when finally the notes that were left behind by that police chief, his daughter revealed it to Dan Farson in the late 50s, who was a television celebrity at that time, he re didn't reveal the name. That was an American writer a few years later. But now for the first time with, by the mid-60s with Beatlemania, the name of the drowned doctor is finally revealed. And it's MJ Druitt, Montague John Druitt, and... Initially, people went, okay, oh, well, we know now, except um, he's a barrister and he's not middle-aged. And he didn't kill himself, like all these stories say, the night of the Mary Jane Kelly atrocity. He did it three weeks later. So an assumption was made, understandable with limited uh, resources, but wrong nonetheless, that 
Sir Melville McNaughton, the police chief, didn't know what he was talking about, didn't know who he was talking about. And the whole subject from that moment went in the wrong direction towards some plausible police suspects and towards very outlandish and unlikely people. But our contention, just to finish, our contention is Sir Melville McNaughton is a reliable source, as is George Sims, as is members of the Druitt family. And therefore, of course, we can't prove Druitt was the killer. But he confessed to his cousin, who was a priest, and obviously he knew things about the murders. I mean, McNaughton only had to hear from the family what Montague had... I mean, Montague was dead by the time he knew about him, but he, well, in his confession, he knew details about the murders that were unknown to anyone but the police and the murderer. So McNaughton, who loved cricket, by the way, couldn't say to them, look, your Montague was just delusional. He had to say, you're right, it is him. And that means that a prominent family will be destroyed if it can be identified in the media. And by the way, I have a very close friend, Colonel Sir Vivian Magendi, a bomb disposal expert against terrorists. And he, unfortunately, by marriage, is related to the Druitt clan. So we're going to have to cover this up. We're going to have to reveal it and yet conceal it at the same time. Right. Lockie, how's that for a start? <laughs> I mean... It in terms of the number of things that we're kicking at here, <laughs> so yeah. it's almost overwhelming. We've got, yeah. uh, <clears throat> it, it, you've got the kind of societal elements around it. We've also got classic ripper themes of conspiracy, uh, as well as the kind of class element to it all, which, which comes into it. I mean, it, you, you can't sort of have looked at the ripper story at all without hearing various conspiracy theories. I mean, including royal uh, ones. I mean, but the the idea of Montague John, John Drew is not a not a new one completely. Oh. It's been it's been it's been kicked around for a, a lot of years now. What makes you so certain about it? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Did you want to? <laughs> no, no, I'm ready. I just, uh, I know I've spoken No, it's cool, because the first thing you're going to get when you try and name the Ripper is scepticism from people. Of course. How do you, how do you now, put that down? We say in the introduction of our book that we don't have evidence, hard evidence, forensic evidence. It's not a, a cold case study by us. What it is is saying that there were certain Victorians, a handful, whom we try to show are reliable sources, and they believed Montague Druitt was Jack the Ripper. I mean, some of them were members of his own family. Families are usually the last people to believe that their member is a, is a, is a fiend. Ted Bundy's mother refused to believe it, even after her son had confessed to murdering 40 women two days before he was executed in America. She still said he's just made it up. Here let's, is talk, let's talk about the family then. You know, what about them? Let's, let's tell us a little bit about those guys. Well, the Druitt family were 
what you might call a very good family. They were upper middle class and they've made their monies through hard work and they were mainly doctors, lawyers, soldiers, um, soldiers, priests. Um, Monty's family came from Dorset and his father was the local doctor or the local surgeon and um, the Druitt family had been there for generations. They came from the Mayo and Druitt clan. You get the Mayo Clinic later generations. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, he, Monty, um, went to Winchester College and was a really good student and he was also um, a terrific sportsman hmm. playing cricket, fives, uh, tennis yeah football everything he was a real all-rounder and um he was in the debating club and the shakespeare club and there's a lot that we found out about him from the um archives of winchester college so they, they were really good in providing and new um, photos that had never been published before yeah so we, we found out a lot about him um he when he was at college um he he was taught by a fellow called Arthur de Borlay Hill. He was a reverend there. And his sister goes on to marry Monty's cousin, Charles Druitt. And that's how the, the Majendi and the Druitt family become uh, a connected clan. Connected clan. And that's where you bring in Sir Vivian Majendi, who was bomb disposal expert and then the friend of George Sims and Melville McNaughton. They're like a, a trio of fellows who are close friends. Um, they're all members of the upper classes. They love going to the boxing and the football and the cricket together. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So these family connections are something that we found out and no one had sat down and worked that out before. And the reason why that's important is that when Sir Melville McNaughton was told, we think by Montague's aunt probably and cousin, that Monty was the ripper, he had every reason to bury that because his best friend was a, a member of that family, Vivian Majendi. Um, the Druitt family in London 
Dr. Robert Jewett was a famous physician, highly respected. This is Montague's uncle. That is his uncle. And looking at old newspapers, his name's in the newspaper nearly every day, endorsing um, healthy wine to drink. And He is an unusual physician, upper-class physician in Victorian England, because he's known to classes upstairs and downstairs because of his advocacy for light wines and so his name is used all the time in every newspaper in advertisements even after he's deceased so we think that when Montague when he went anywhere and he said his name was Druid the first question he would inevitably be asked would be oh are you related to Dr Druid Dr Robert Druid yes I'm one of his nephews and we think that helped get him off the hook when he was arrested the night he murdered two women in Whitechapel probably with an apology so let's talk about <clears throat> he's not tried. I mean, he's never picked up and tried. And you've already mentioned because he kills himself. So when does he do that? And what are the you're saying it's mental health? Um, what are the circumstances? What uh, a researcher called AJ, uh, RJ Palmer in America discovered was a newspaper article uh, in the Philadelphia Times that showed that um, an American reporter had picked up stuff in Paris that somebody from England had been brought across by members of their family uh, to be put into a mental institution, a very expensive asylum just outside of Paris. And while the name Druitt is not used, in fact, all the names are, are false, there are so many details in that story that match things about Montague Druitt and his family that we make a circumstantial case in the book in a chapter called English Patient that Druitt had the, after the horrific murder of Mary Kelly, he was in a in a in a state of uh, implosion, and he confessed to his cousin. And the cousin and Montague's older brother of one year, um, they thought, right, our family will be destroyed by this. So we don't want him to harm anyone else, and we'll take him to France under an assumed name. We'll pay them off a lot of money. Unfortunately, one of the nurse, male nurses there was English and could understand everything he was saying and went straight to the French constabulary in order to collect the reward. So he had to be extricated once again from the French asylum back to London. And a, a week or so later, they put him in an English asylum in Chiswick. Now, the police didn't have the name. The British police went to France. He had already absconded. They went back to England. They're checking all private asylums, which is quite a thing to do when you think of uh, the, the wealthy people who put their relatives in such places. And mental, mental illness was something to be ashamed of then. And so to suddenly have uh, the, the, the police turning up and asking questions about when were they admitted and who are they is quite a... But they felt they had to do it because they were hot on his trial. And we think that Montague at this asylum called the Manor House in Chiswick he was aware, he, he was lucid again, and he thought, I, I'm not going to have my family destroyed. So he just walked the, the 10 metres that the, the, the manor house was situated next to the River Thames and just walked in and drowned himself by putting rocks in his pockets. This was on, this was on December uh, 4th, and his body surfaced at the end of the month and was, was retrieved on December 31st, uh, 1888. And at the inquiry, two years, sorry, two days later, the, the, the local coroner uh, was actually known. This was, this was a source that, it was, Christine's the one who finds everything. And she discovered that the coroner, Dr. Diplock, was very well known to the Druitt family. No one has ever discovered that before. And that is why he lets the brother say a blatant lie at that inquiry, 
He says, my late brother Montague, he had no other relatives except me and our mother who has been institutionalized since July with a degenerative mental condition. So he looks very honest saying something like that. What, of course, he's not saying with the press all there with their pencils ready with their paper. They were thinking, is this, is this Montague Druitt related to Dr. Druitt? Oh, the answer is no. That was a lie. He was lying at that inquiry through his teeth, desperate to uh, not have the family name implicated by any connection to Jack the Ripper. And it was very successfully covered up at that point. The problem for the family was other copycat murders were being done. And Montague Druitt's aunt, the widow of Dr. Robert Druitt, thought, well, we can't have someone else be hung for this. What are we going to do? What can we do? And Charles, who'd taken the confession and was an Anglican reverend, he was like, well, Montague said to me, in 10 years, the truth must come out. Maybe it should come out earlier. And when Melvin McNaughton intersected with all this, because he's got his friend Magendi, who, who would be who would be his name would be tarnished by being connected with the Druitts and Jack the Ripper. Also, Melvin McNaughton, who's a fascinating figure in his own right, is a very unusual police chief in that time because he's upper class. His, his father was one of the chairmen of the East India Company. He had been to Eton College and remained a, a sort of hooray Henry old Tony in his whole life. But it meant that at Scotland Yard, he outranked everybody by class. And so his attitude was, right, I'm taking control of the cover-up so that you are protected, my friend Magendi is protected, I'll make sure no one else is hung for it, and if it comes to it and we have to release details, we will make the details a little bit different from who he will still say he was a gentleman, but we'll say he was a middle-aged doctor, then he'll never be found. Lockie, where do you want to go next? I'm just thinking about kind of other suspects and kind of how that ties in and, and, yes. and what was, you know, supported by by kind of revelations like that uh, as, it, as it happens. I'm still curious about the family, um, though, to, to a degree. I mean, how how do they become aware of his connection to the murders? And Well, we think that he confessed to his cousin, Charles. Um, okay. Charles actually was a reverend in, in um, Dorset. Dorset. Um, in Whitchurch, and um, they were they were close. And Monty had always visited the the Druitt family in Kensington um, when he was working um, at Blackheath, and also he had chambers in King's Bench Walk. Yeah. Uh, that they were his legal chambers, which is near the East End, of course. We've got letters that tell us that they were a close family. And um, in the West End, King's Bench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so we know there was a close relationship there. Now, we believe that Monty did confess to Charles and um, that, that's when... That we have sources for that. Mm. There yeah. is a, a vicar who in 1899 sends a letter to the Daily Mail and he says, I, I know who Jack the Ripper is and this is my letter on it because the the murderer wanted after 10 years for some of the truth to come out but the vicar says however i'm going to mix fact with fiction to protect the innocent and the daily mail are like well we don't publish stories that are made up at least so blatantly mm. and so they mm. send a, they send a reporter up north and we believe that this is arthur de borle hill who was Montague Druitt's brother-in-law, 
and he um, Charles Charles Stewart's brother-in-law. Sorry, <laughs> and he and he meets the vicar, and the vicar says, uh, "I knew him well. He he went to the East End as part of a rescue mission of fallen women, and because of a mental disease he had, they they became his victims. And I and I can't say any more than that, except that at one time he was a doctor. Now you can't at one time." be a doctor you're either a doctor and perhaps you're qualified but you don't practice but the term doctor was used interchangeably we discovered with medical student and so we discovered evidence that Montague Druitt had been a medical student he dropped out he had done a civil service exam done well but then never went into the civil service he chose law in the end so the vicar is saying to the journalist if you don't want to publish it don't publish it and they're like, well, we probably won't publish it, but we'll publish an article about how we can't publish it. So we'll whinge about it in our paper and we'll quote from your letter. Uh, and just as he's leaving, the vicar said, oh, just one thing. Do you mind not publishing my name? Because my name could lead to the identification of the murderer. He had called his article for them the White Church Murders as if to say, see, I'm mixing fact and fiction. We all know it's Whitechapel, with the people of Daily Mail scratching their head thinking, what is this Dotty Vicar on about? Well, Whitechurch is the name of Charles Druitt, Montague's cousin's parish in Dorset. So he is pointing towards, you know, my name might give it away. I mean, his name's Deborle Hill, not Druitt. But he's saying, please don't publish it because it might uh, give it away. And we think the only reason they didn't do a proper investigation of the whole thing was that it involved the Church of England. And that just wasn't worth it for them in the end. So this vicar remains this strange anomalous source, but we have found other sources that match it. One of the people who took uh, the English patient to France for that French asylum mm. was a man who identified himself as, I am the, I am the patient's cousin and uh, I'm a reverend. Lockie's like, I can see Lockie's brain whirring at this point. <laughs> He's just it's, just, like... it's just whenever you hear kind of new kind of elements on this, I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure out how this, how this fits, it fits in uh, with it all. So, I mean, the people involved in this cover-up then, we've got McNaughton, we've got um, Sims. Colonel Magendi. Sims. Magendi, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, a Henry Farkson as well, isn't there? Yes. Fer Ferguson. Um, Henry Farkson is an MP, a Tory MP, a backbencher. And in 1891, he starts telling his 10 best friends in London, I know who Jack the Ripper is. Right. He, he, he's, a man, he's, a, he's a gentleman who committed suicide. And it leaks to the press. So the press do this small article going, they don't name Farkson initially, they do later, saying there's an MP who's going around saying, it's almost like his doctrine, I know who it is, I have solved it. Now, what we discovered about Farkson is, is that he really is a revolting, tough figure, uh, but he lived nine miles from the Druids. And we think that what happened was Charles went to him, uh, a bit like the brother of the Unabomber went to an FBI agent and said, I think the manifesto's by someone I know, but I, I don't want him to be executed. We think Charles Druitt and probably his mother, Isabella, went to the MP and said, look, we, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. 
We want you as an officer of the state to tell the police that please don't connect anyone else with those five murders in 1888 because they were done by our late cousin. And Farquharson went, thank you for that, and went straight to his gentleman's club in London and blabbed to everyone. And that's what brought McNaughton in because they're both old Etonians. And McNaughton, when he met the Druids, we think that what he said was, well, we can bury this. It never has to come out at all. And they went, no, no, Vicar Charles is determined to fulfil Montague's dying wish or next to dying wish that it come out in 10 years. And that's when McNaughton thought, all right, we've got a few years to come up with a cover story that will quash the vicar. And so George Sims came out in 1899 and said, this vicar doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet they've got the same suspect. What, what effect does this have on the family then? Because eventually it does, it does come out. And where, where do they end up? How, how, how does it go for them afterwards? Um, they're all deceased by the time Druitt's name comes out in 1965. There was the son, a son who was a nephew, who was about to be awarded, I think, a knighthood in, mm. in 1965. That was awkward. And yet none of the press made the connection that, well, your name's Druitt. And this American book, Autumn of Terror, has named Mel McNaughton's notes as saying it's MJ. I mean, no one even, I mean, imagine today with the internet and uh, it would just be instant. There would be microphones shoved in this guy's face saying, was your uncle Jack the Ripper? Should you deserve this knighthood? But, but it, just didn't it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen then. And It'd be so, all over Twitter, condemned it all over Twitter. before yeah. he even knew what hit him, wouldn't it? But can I just say something else that, Christine, she found all these sources, and one of the sources she found, never found before, was that Barrister Montague Druitt had himself defended a murderer in court. The year before the murderer started, he defended a murderer, a child murderer, and he tried to blame the murder on that man's, his client's wife, who was obviously innocent, she was also a sex worker, and he did such a terrible demolition job on her, even though she's not on trial, that she had to leave town for her own safety. Well, that'll add weight to a kind of misogyny element, wouldn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Mm, mm. Oh, this is just lucky. You are a sceptic usually when people say they think they know who Jack the Ripper is. Are you at least moved to, like, seriously consider this? I know you, you're a historian, and you're going to want to match the Druid stuff up against evidence for other people and that. But in isolation, are you open to the possibility that this guy might be Jack the Ripper? I, to be honest, I've been open to a lot of theories throughout, to the point mm. where I, I'm almost in the almost in the I don't care who did it kind of camp a little bit in the sense that I um it, how to put this the kind of work that gets done around there most of the time that there's, there's a like quite a big kick around against the kind of Jack the Ripper uh element to 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 Whitechapel and Spitalfields where I do tours and a lot of what I do now um say for example I'm taking a group of school kids uh, around there if, it, if I'd done it 10 years ago yeah it would have been Jack the Ripper and here's where <laughs> happened but now it's it's really quite different uh in fact and we look a lot more at the kind of societal elements the kind of immigration mm. in the area the kind of anti-Jewish sentiment and if we do look at suspects it'll it'll often be centered on the kind of Russian Polish Jewish um 
visitors or, or, or recent arrivals that had so much hostility directed towards them as well. And that's kind of where we'll put the focus. And funnily enough, you know, outwardly at least, that's where the police put a lot of the focus at the time as well. They had a lot of witness statements saying, oh, you know, some swarthy looking Eastern European. The best witness statement, the best witness statement was by Joseph Lavendi, because he's only about eight minutes between talking, seeing Catherine Eddowes, the the fourth, uh, third victim, talking to a young man whom this Jewish witness, Jewish Polish witness, described as about five foot seven, about 30, fair. He is a fair complexion. And a fair moustache. So he appears to be a Gentile, not a Jewish person, by ethnicity. And then the next time the Bobby comes around eight minutes later, that woman has been uh, in a you know, coward blitz attack, ripped to pieces by, we believe, Montague Druitt. So the best witness description, for what that's worth in witness descriptions, fits Druitt. But we come back always to this. We don't know that Montague drew it was Jack the Ripper. How could we? We're just yeah, saying yeah. they believed it was, and not only did they believe it was, they shared their solution with the public. For Edwardians, there was no mystery. It was rebooted as a mystery in the 1930s. That's what I fascinates think, us. Yeah, I think the, the, the honest answer to the question that Alex, Alex put to me is, yeah, yeah, I've found this kind of plausible for, for some time, for some time, but, you know, there's, a lot of plausible stories uh, around it. And I don't think you can know for sure either. But no, the, no. Story, the story keeps going. And, and They had every reason, the family, McNaughton, George Sims, Magendi, for it not to be Druitt. They didn't oh, no want it to be Druitt. So for them yeah. to say, it is Montague, now what do we do now, is arguably human proof that it is him, that, that the evidence matches up, unfortunately for us. The other thing I would say is McNaughton is actually the source for all the other suspects in that era. And he tells all the other people involved, particularly Dr. Robert Anderson, his, his boss, whom he loathed, he tells them all that, yes, yes, it's that suspect, Aaron Kosminski, yes. Because uh, I found Aaron Kosminski, he says. But he... he uh, Knowing Anderson was a Victorian prude par excellence, he says to him, well, he, he died in asylum, knowing full well he's still alive in the asylum, and he, he was involved in chronic masturbation. And at that moment, Anderson <laughs> went, Mac, that's him. That's Jack the Ripper. Because any man who would abuse their own body <laughs> against the Lord is capable of anything. I mean, that's what Anderson wrote. I love it. I love the the Victorian. The Victorians are as mucky as anyone, yet you can't trust the guy who jerks one off. You can't. Absolutely. Whereas McNaughton, he'd grown up at Eton. He knew all about that sort of thing. And I I wrote a book on Eton. They're at it too. I'm telling you now, the amount of source material and accounts I've read about boys at Eton, they're all at it. And McNaughton, his neighbour was Oscar Wilde. And even after Oscar Wilde was disgraced. definitely at it. He called him a genius. <laughs> it was fashionable to just call him a degenerate, but McNaughton always yeah. said, no, no, he was a genius. And so he was actually quite an unusually sophisticated police figure about such matters. So he handed Anderson, Jack the Masturbator, to, 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 to get him as far away from looking anywhere near the Druids. If you look at all the suspects from that era, everybody says, yes, this is who Jack the Ripper was. And by the way, he's dead. 
Uh, he, he probably committed suicide. All the other suspects are actually alive. Only Montague Druitt was deceased of a suicide. It's, it's something, because McNaughton never conferred with other Scotland Yard people about what he knew, because his attitude was, because it'll leak, of course. We just keep it close to our chest as gentlemen. I, I love the concept that, guys, I can reveal to you that Jack the Ripper was a man who masturbated. No shit. <laughs> he masturbated himself into an early grave. That's what he yeah. told. <laughs> That's him, Mac. Behold the man. I need Victoria to issue some warnings to some of the guys in my rugby team in that case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just finally, before we go, I mean, I, this, yeah. is, this is really interesting. And even if you are like Lockie, you are like you want to keep your options open, you've got to at least read the case that people put, haven't you, uh, for certain individuals. You've been talking on and off about some of the sources and some of them are so niche, like to find a, a newspaper letter 12 years later or to find sort of, yes. to go back and look at family letters for people that might be connected to a suspect i mean you have done your due diligence in terms of sources and not just pontificating theories haven't you absolutely and we've actually we've... i haven't <laughs> yeah i just want <laughs> to say christine done this yeah. she appears to be bloody good at it as well we've done the um 20 hour flight to london three times to to actually go and, and read those letters in Mate, the to go to East London three times all the way from Australia as a South Londoner, I'm saying that's dedication. <laughs> I spent a lot of time down in Chichester, so that that was lovely. <laughs> Reading letters. Can we just say something against Q? <laughs> you wouldn't be like. first. <laughs> well, we went to the records. It's at Q. The archive. Archive. And, archive. Ca- and then when we'd finished. We, we, Christine had some trouble with her feet then, and, and my eyesight, I doesn't look it, but it's actually better now than it was. Yeah. And we couldn't get a cab. Like, no one would, would come. They just, they rang people. We rang people. They said, yeah, we're not going to queue. Like, where, where are we in queue? All these gardens? Is this the Badlands? It's getting dark. It's the opposite so, of the Badlands. Of course it is. But they were like, we're not doing queue. The Druid family. No way. Where are you? Queue? No way. And so finally, well, this Welsh taxi driver came and picked us up. I don't mean from Wales. Come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy. Jeremy, he's become, he's become a friend of ours because we just don't know what to do. Because he's the only person who would come and rescue only person. He's the only one. <laughs> and even he said, I feel sorry for you because you are in queue. No one will help you then. I don't understand. I'm like, do you know how much the house goes for in queue? <laughs> Where, where are, are these druid type people with knives? I think they all have their, they all have their own dies, drivers, I think is the problem. But it's like there. if someone dies and leaves you a house in queue, you're smug, right? <laughs> That's what we thought looking around. Why is, oh, not, not queue, no way. You can walk. <laughs> um, right, Christine, Jonathan, we, we do have to wrap up now. Sure. This, is, this has been... Fun. Like uh, it's, it's a grim old topic, and it, it is un- unbelievably, yeah, heavy. Really, when you do end up getting into it. So just to just to bring it back to seriousness for a second. I mean, the um, the the story of these women, the ones killed, is just awful. But they were kind of the lives that they lived uh, around 
um, then as well, and and kind of the situations they were forced into is is harsh, and I believe that that, that comes through uh, in your work, but also kind of the elements that we keep discussing, keep coming around, uh, have come through uh, in this. So we've got a new classic of the genre uh, yeah. potentially here, and, and we and, think the best justice for the victims is to name their killer, not let him get away with it. Yeah. Arguably. Okay. I mean, and can we just? You're great and everything, Jonathan, but Christine, well done for giving him a foot up the arse and making him actually put his where he's going. I completely agree. Yeah, I still have the imprint. <laughs> Guys, once again, tell us what the book is called. The Escape of Jack the Ripper. Um, the truth about the cover-up and his flight from justice. The word escape means he escaped by committing suicide. Yeah took the cow's way out um yes the book will be available on our online bookstore yeah. buy it from there uh this yeah. is now zach's regular pitch do not buy it from jeff bezos because he'll just spend it on rocket fuel and we don't like him anyway if you buy no. bookshop.org not only do jonathan and christine get a cut history hack gets a cut as well and we support independent booksellers so do trot over and there and get yourself a copy guys this has been so much fun thank you very much thank, thank you, you so much. much thank you very much thank you when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.